0: Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. My guest this week is a returning guest, Dr. Dwayne Scotty, physical therapist and owner of Spark Healthy Runner. He is an incredible wealth of knowledge on a ton of topics, which is why I was super excited to have him back for this conversation on foam rolling, fascia, the kind of assisted recovery tools that we can use in our training. Uh, If you haven't listened to the episode from season two where he was a guest, we talked about plantar fasciitis in great depth and detail. So if you are a person who's been struggling with plantar fasciitis, pop over and give episode to Listen after you're done listening to this one. But in this episode, we are covering, like I said, those assisted recovery tools, foam rolling, you know, flossing, percussion massagers. We talk about stretching a little bit uh, and we talk about what they can and cannot do, how they actually work and what they aren't doing for you <laughs> and what they're not replacing. And we also do finish talking about KT tape uh, and if it actually does anything. Stay tuned to find out. And please enjoy. Dr. Dwayne Scotty, welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: I am doing well. Thank you for having me back, Elizabeth.
0: Well, of course, after our conversation last season about plantar fasciitis, which I think is like kind of a go-to resource for a lot of runners now, if you haven't checked it out and you're dealing with plantar fasciitis, go give it a listen. Uh, I had to have you come back for round two and pick your brain again.
1: Cool. Yeah, no, I'm always, always game for Talking shop. And yeah, we had a great chat about plantar fasciitis. And I know that was helpful for a lot of your listeners, um, which was pretty, pretty great to see because yeah, there's a lot of information out there on the, on the webs and you do Dr. Google and you don't necessarily find the best uh, treatment for runners. So uh, that was great. And I'm excited to come back on today to talk about some like recovery tools.
0: Yeah. Well, tell us what you've been up to in the interim. I think it's been I know you I've been on your podcast, so we have spoken since uh, since last fall. But tell us what you've been up to in the intervening six months.
1: Yeah. So um, I know I'm trying to think if the last time was actually after my marathon. I did do a Hartford uh, last October. Um, We either spoke just before that or just after. So I did that, did a nice little um, recovery after, and then actually ran a fast half before my season was over, which was nice to see because my race day did not go as planned um, with some GI distress. So... It, it felt good to run a fast half after that, because as you always talk about, it's the training, right? And the process of training that we get those benefits and anything can happen on race day. Um, so that kind of happened. And then I've really been in uh, base building mode um, all winter, like you're going to be doubling down on your strength of summer. I was doing that in the winter. Um, so I really, you know, lifted heavy, doubled down on my base building, building my weekly mileage, um, over that time. And that, that went really well. And, you know, I did the most mileage that I've done, um, you know, really added in like some tempo threshold work into base training, which traditionally I was always one of those runners that kind of like shut it down for the season. And you just ran a little bit more, you know, just Easy running, you know, nothing really too hard, but um, it was really nice to see a little bit of that benefit. And now I'm in full blown, actually like peaking right now in half marathon mode. So three weeks from now, I'll be running my spring half marathon goal race before I run a marathon next October again.
0: Ah, exciting. Is it going to be Hartford round Two again
1: in the fall? No, no, no. I'm done with Hartford now. I've done it twice. uh, So now I'm moving on, (laughs) moving on to bigger and better things. Got to get out of the state of Connecticut. Um, So I'm thinking, um, and I say I'm thinking because I've yet to register. It's literally been open on my browser uh, for weeks now, but I'm looking at Wineglass. I hear Mm -hmm. that's a, a nice one. So I'm looking to travel you know, not too, too big. Um, you know, I did try to actually get into Chicago and I remember you and I were messaging. Um, but unfortunately I didn't get in. So eventually I'll run Chicago, but I'm thinking of a uh, wine glass or there's a couple of others around those weeks, but I need to kind of do it a little bit more on the earlier side of the season in like first or second weekend of October. So yeah, I'm looking That's forward so to give it another crack.
0: I'm sorry that your marathon didn't go very well but I love this idea that you know you you it wasn't like you were looking for a redemption marathon but you knew that you wanted to do something with the fitness that you had with the marathon and did that half marathon to cap off your season. You know, I think so often this is so off topic but I think that sometimes <clears throat> so often when we have a race that doesn't go well the immediate reaction is I want redemption. I want revenge. I just trained for five months and it didn't go well. I'm going to sign up for this next race in three or four weeks. And, you know, that's not often the best idea. But what you did was you kind of did something and said, well, I have all this fitness. I'm going to do a little recovery and I'm going to run a shorter distance. That's going to allow me to showcase my fitness in something that's not quite as demanding as an actual marathon. So that's awesome that you did that.
1: Yeah, no, I was uh, very... Very pleased with it, and and honestly, the whole, you know, I really embraced the the training, and I actually really enjoyed it, and it was. The first time in five years, I went for seconds for the marathon. So it was really, you know, since I started the Healthy Runner podcast and, you know, became a run coach myself from being a running physical therapist where I learned so much more about the training element. And I, I really enjoyed, like I loved actually like training for the marathon, whereas the first time around, I just remember it being... Horrendous. It sucked because I was doing everything wrong, basically. Um, So, this time around, like I just felt so good and confident even going into the race. And I was like, you know, it it was the training and the fact that like I was able to complete such demanding, rigorous training and stay healthy and like not get injured like I did in the beginning of my running journey. Um, Like, to me, that was like a huge win. And I was like, I know. I'll definitely be back. And um, yeah, I'm enjoying, you know, running and training, I guess, for more thinking of mindset of marathon races, you know, from this point forward in the future, at least for the uh, next couple years. Yeah.
0: And that's the key, I think, to any race training cycle is is not only putting the work, but enjoying the process. Right? We're not going to love every single run. We're not going to feel amazing all the time. But, you know, you're you shouldn't go through these training cycles and feeling like you are just relentlessly wearing yourself down into a little nub along the way. <laughs> it right. should be sustainable. It should be yep. a good thing, right? Additive, not not detrimental.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely, indeed.
0: So actually, it's a really good transition to our topic today because so often when we have runners who are chasing specific goals, building their mileage, training for races, whatever the thing is, we're always looking for that extra edge, right? Those extra things we can add into our training or into our daily routines that can provide us with that extra like little advantage, right? And so the things we're talking about today are, I don't know, to kind of collectively call them, I don't know if they're like you know, assisted recovery modalities, it's we're talking about foam rolling, percussion massager tools, things like KT tape, uh, you know, things that are more I would like active recovery in the sense that they they are purported to facilitate recovery through an active process. Um, As a physical therapist, what's your like hot take on these types of things?
1: Wow. Yeah. So that's a, that's a loaded question. I needed to pause I honestly <laughs> because I, I think really just framing this, um, and I think maybe this might be helpful in like framing today's conversation, is that we know the injury rates are extremely high in runners. Like eight out of ten runners listening to us right now are going to wind up getting injured, um, unfortunately, in this next year. And most of the reason why runners get injured is it's more kind of uh, runner fault or running errors and errors in their training and, you know, not actually taking proper recovery from the hard training that people are signing up for, whether it's a half marathon or your first 5K or, you know, your marathon training. And there are simple strategies that we can implement to tolerate the demands of training for a half or training for a marathon. Um, and it's like overwhelming, right? There are so many things out there and trying to grow in this running journey. Like I just described, I'm kind of growing in my running journey and, you know, really, I guess an update on kind of the, the business side of things from like Spark Healthy Runner really in these last six months is we really created this framework on like, our running journey, that there are six parts to growing as a runner in order to optimize your running so you can stay strong and last long. And these really are bucketed into six parts in how we grow as a runner. The first is mindset. Because, as you know, goal setting, right, proper mindset, all those things, expectations, right, that that's necessary to have that down in order to be successful as a runner. You know, two is strength training, which, you know, creates that foundation. So important. Um, Three is the run plan and the actual training. So like what you and I do from like a run coaching standpoint and the types of runs and when we add those in. Um, Four is nutrition to fuel our bodies. Five is recovery and that's where like today's conversation really falls in is like recovery and then number 6 is kind of executing the perfect race day strategy but like when we optimize like those six key components of our running journey, we're gonna feel more confident, we're gonna feel strong, like finishing races, and we're not gonna get injured. Like I just kind of described, you know, from my last marathon experience and then the half. Um, So that's really where kind of today's topic falls in, is like the recovery bucket. So it's like literally one-fifth or one-sixth of, not great in math, that's why my wife's the (laughs) accountant, Uh, (laughs) one-sixth of like what we do from a running standpoint. Whereas most runners like and I did this in the beginning of my running journey is like you just focus on the running and you don't realize that you have to train in order to run. And, you know, in the beginning of kind of creating this framework. Um, I, I, it was all like strength training for me. And then I realized as I started training for marathons, like how important recovery is, how important nutrition is and fueling our runs, how important a race day strategy is. Um, so that's why they're in kind of our framework and, you know, recovery is extremely important. It's, it's essential. It's not a nice to do. It is part of the training. And sometimes for some runners, it can be like make or break their training, whether they jump over that line because what happens when we are training for these races um you know we're challenging our bodies we're trying to actually improve right most runners want to improve whether it is run longer or run faster and how our bodies adapt to those demands is yes physiologically we're going to improve over time but there's this like peak where you can fall off the cliff and now you've overtrained essentially And your body is going to, you know, start fighting back, whether it is the plantar fascia or it's your IT band screaming at you being like, yeah, you know what? That 18 miler? Yeah, I wasn't feeling that. And you know what? There was a little too many hills on it. And now I'm going to give you some pain on the outside of your knee. And it's going to feel sharp every time you get up and every time you go up and downstairs. So there is this kind of limit where we can kind of jump over that. So it's this like fine balance of like how hard do we push ourselves and then you know, still get that improvement that we're looking for without overtraining. And, you know, realizing that recovery is one of the components of training and you need to dedicate time to it and you need to do the right things. And hopefully today we can kind of provide some clarity on some of the things that may be like myths out there and then some of the things that actually might be beneficial for us to kind of double down in our recovery bucket.
0: Something that I hear a lot from runners is I whenever I talk, you know, talk to runners in a coaching consult or in just, you know, one-on-one capacity is that I often hear a lot of shoulds, right? When they come to me as a running coach, you know, they say, you know, they, they tend to qualify things, right? Like, "Oh, you know, I know that I should be doing this, or I know I should be doing that, like, I know I'm not, you know, this, I don't have those goals, I don't run these paces." Like, so first of all, we coaches don't care, right? Like, we don't you know, we're here to help you. We don't care about how fast or slow you are. You know, we don't care if you should or should not be doing things, right? We're here to guide you on the things that are going to be most appropriate for you wherever you're coming from. But something I hear so often from runners is, you know, I know that I should be foam rolling. Oh, I know that I, you know, I, I oh, but, oh, or my, my other favorite is that, um, yeah, you know, I don't take a lot of rest days, but I foam roll pretty regularly, so that helps my recovery. Um, Let's start with the foam roller. I went through this as a newer runner. When I ran into my first injuries, I got IT band syndrome, which is a great example because you just mentioned it. Uh, I got an over IT band syndrome from straight up overuse. And somebody, I texted a friend who I knew was a runner. And I said, I have this pain on the outside of my knee. And they said, that sounds like IT band syndrome. And I said, what should I do? And they said, do clam shells and buy a foam roller. And I was like, okay. So I bought a resistance band, started doing clamshells and bought a foam roller. When is the appropriate time to use a foam roller? What does it and can't it do? And when is it not helpful?
1: Yeah, so great questions. And really when we're looking at foam rolling, we are looking at affecting the connective tissue network that we have in our bodies. And you know that network is called what we call fascia. And foam rolling is one technique that can be a self myofascial release technique. And, you know, as we think about fascia, I, I think of it as like the Saran wrap that covers all the stuff in our body. So it's got these interweaving patterns um, that wraps around our organs, our muscles, our bones, our tendons, our ligaments, and even our brain matter. Um, and, that fascia does wrap around our muscles and joints and can become inflamed, irritated, can cause pain. And most people feel this or they perceive it as feeling tight and like my muscles are tight. And over time, if left alone, let's say we never did any self myofascial release techniques, then the fascia can harden, impair movement, circulation. And that's like when we feel a knot in a muscle and eventually you know, and there is some, you know, evidence to show that the tissues themselves have built up some fluid adhesions, um, you know, quote unquote scar tissue in the fascia. And the, the key here is, I don't want anyone to be scared by any means, but this could over time limit mobility and how we move. And if that's the case, then let's just, Like, I think the ankle is a great example because it is one of the more common ones that I see is tightness in, let's say, the calf muscles or the fascia that surrounds the calf, the Achilles tendon. And if it limits your ankle mobility, which is one of the key mobility things that we need as runners, especially if we're running in hillier areas like our neighborhoods, um, you know, if it's going to limit your mobility and you can't flex your ankle you're going to wind up compensating somewhere else in your running gait pattern. So it's really a result of kind of abnormal movement patterns that this will create a problem over time as a runner. So, you know, it is more of the compensations that set us up for potential, like, overuse injury with running. So I am actually a big fan of adding in some foam rolling into your recovery bucket And you can either do this one or two times, either actually three times. Uh, You can do it before your runs, after your runs, which are are really good to do after your runs. I would say that's probably the most important time Um, just to kind of increase the blood flow into your soft tissues and the connective tissue to help aid recovery. Because when we use our muscles, Right. We're like breaking down muscles and then they have to recover and we rebuild and they tolerate the training that we're doing a little bit more so it can, you know, act as that, quote unquote, cool down, like for those that like started in, you know, the uh cardio realm and took like spinning classes and all that and you've always been told like you got to do a good cool down at the end like let's be honest for us as runners like how many of us actually like stop and walk for five or ten minutes after a run we're like rushing right we got things to do schedules right meetings that we're late for we're like rushing in trying to hop in the shower um and we're not doing a cool down so your foam roller could actually act as that nice little cool down to aid in some of that recovery the other thing that i really enjoy doing is getting on my foam roller in the beginning of my runs. And I found that as I've started aging here, heading into my mid forties, um, you know, you feel stiff in the morning, you feel tight. And I really like five or 10 minutes on my foam roller, really hitting like my top seven exercises that runners should be doing top seven muscles that we should be hitting, um, which I have a nice little instructional YouTube video on how to do that, um, is, is, really doing that before the runs to more stimulate the nervous system and like add input into like, Hey, now we got some little bit of blood flow here. I'm waking muscles up that are like sleepy. So it's kind of not so much from the recovery aspect, more for like the activation aspect, um, and doing some like dynamic mobility after that, right? Like muscle activation, um, you know, warm up before your run. So I think that's kind of where see, and then you can also do this, you know, especially on long run days, right? Later in the day, in the evening, you're just, your muscles are now like feeling like, wow, today's workout was a hard one. It's like the first time that you go 12 miles for a while. First time you go 14, 16, right? Or first time you headed to the track in months, like I felt, you know, three weeks ago and I was like, holy cow, man, I am tight. So that evening, got down on my foam roller five or 10 minutes. Um, That's really all it needs to take 30 seconds or so per muscle group. Um, You you don't need to, you know, dedicate and schedule. I'm going to do a 45 minute foam roll session or, and and then like you said before, feel guilty if you don't get in an hour of foam rolling uh, per day and like you're doing something bad as a runner. It doesn't take that much time.
0: So what I'm hearing you say is that it sounds like the primary action, the foam roll is useful for us is that it really helps increase blood flow to very specific areas, especially areas that might be, like you said, experiencing tension or tightness or soreness or whatever it is. And I actually think it's very cool when you look at research done, done on delayed mu- onset muscle soreness or DOMS, right? So that post-workout muscle soreness, is that one of the best things you can do to alleviate symptoms is to bring blood flow to that area. By doing a low intensity recovery like a walk or by foam rolling. Um, and so, but I think it's very interesting and very important for us to differentiate between the types of things that, how do I put this? That are going to be beneficial to you overall while still not necessarily taking the place of other things that you should also be doing. Um, because foam rolling is beneficial, but it doesn't replace strength training your dynamic warm-up you know nutrition like it doesn't replace any of those things
1: indeed yeah no absolutely one thousand percent um couldn't agree more if you had to let's say um you know fill your um remember the strength training has its own bucket right like that is most important that's going to supersede anything in the recovery bucket but like foam rolling is just one tool in the recovery bucket you know, ones that we're probably not going to get into today, but getting proper sleep is actually the most important thing we could do. And having a rest and recovery day in your training and not running seven days a week is more important than anything you could do on the foam roller, right? So I love how you talked about prioritizing that. And then when it comes to running injuries, like we know that, like that is established within the literature, like IT band syndrome, runner's a um, Achilles tendopti, how do we get over those is by actually loading, strengthening certain muscles that are not activating properly or not loaded properly. Strengthening our tendons is going to be a heck of a lot more beneficial than releasing things or even stretching. And, you know, I guess we haven't talked about that. It's probably worth mentioning. Um, I place stretching in the recovery bucket as well. Um, again, it doesn't get the, the, the credit it should as strengthening as it, you know has its own bucket. So stretching can also be a recovery tool um, that may be helpful for certain individuals if they are more on the stiffer side. They lack mobility. They lack range of motion. But if you're like Gumby already and you know you are hypermobile or you're double jointed, quote unquote, like you probably don't need to be doing stretching at all, and it's not going to help you stay injury free as a runner but strengthening will so i love that you brought up this strengthening point
0: the other thing that i see runners a mistake i think that i see with make with foam rollers is when they are injured they are foam rolling the injured part right? So they, let's say they have a, a hamstring strain and they're like wailing on their hamstring strain on the foam roller. And then I, I think one of the, some of the <clears throat> ways we talk about foam rolling is like, Ooh, it hurts so good. Like, Oh man. Like, you know. but it shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be foam rolling injuries. Like you should not be foam rolling on injury.
1: Yeah, correct. And it does depend upon the injury. Um, uh, so yes, if like someone was doing <laughs> hill repeats or as you call them hard up Hills that we talked about on the health order podcast, Um, you know, and they like pulled their hammy, let's say, or you're on the track and you pull your hamstring. Like, yes, you don't want to necessarily get on your foam roller and think that's going to like help it. Um, But like the IT band syndrome one is such a common one that you mentioned. I love that you brought that up before because that is a misconception is like, Hey, I got to like rub over this. Like if you have IT band syndrome, do not put your foam roller anywhere close to where that IT band actually attaches to your bone on the outside of your knee because you will just irritate the heck out of the thing and how i like to kind of for those that have it band syndrome is roll slightly in front of the band not anywhere near the knee by the way in your thigh and then slightly behind the band in your thigh, not near your knee, um, to kind of release some of that connective tissue to take pressure off of where it attaches at the knee. But yes, I would agree, you know, same thing for like Achilles. If someone's Achilles is really, you know, you're not going to want to like foam roll your Achilles per se. Um, You could roll the muscles above it and the calf muscle. um, But yeah, it's not going to be, the quick fix. And when it hurts so good and feels good, it is usually for tight muscles, not necessarily injuries, right? So just when you are feeling tight, when you're feeling like you had a good workout and your muscles just need a little bit more love, basically.
0: I want to talk about fascia a little bit more because fascia is incredibly strong. And I know And you I obviously as the, you know, doctor of physical therapy, you will know more about this than I do. And I, I wanna I wanna learn more about this is that, you know, I've been told that fascia is very hard to deform, right? So I think this conception that when we are doing some sort of myofascial release that we are like deforming our fascia, but it's a very, very strong tissue. How does it actually work? Is it more about, like you said, blood flow and our nervous system involvement that really makes the difference?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not so much that we're stretching fashion. I remember actually doing this um, when I did uh, my PhD work um, and my dissertation was actually on runner's knee. And I looked specifically at the IT band and I was actually doing a study that looked at stretching and manual stretching techniques for the IT band. And what we really realized is that we cannot stretch the IT band um, because it is this long connective tissue that goes all the way down the side of your thigh. um, And they've actually done like uh, cadaver studies that looked at how much tension it actually takes to like physically deform the IT band. And there's no human possible way that we can ever do that with a stretch. Um, So I never even, you know, give stretches for IT band. Like, I don't think you can stretch that tissue. um, Just anatomically, you can't. So that's why I do recommend releasing the tissues that kind of connect to it and like some of the fascial attachments. But yes, what you're feeling and why you feel looser is more of this stimulating your nervous system and how your brain perceives tightness. It's not so much that we're actually stretching those tissues because like you said, they are, it's a connective tissue. It's, it's, it's not something that, you know, muscles can be stretched. And we do know that if we were to statically stretch something over time, like consistently, you can improve flexibility and that will work. But, you know, connective tissue is definitely different. Um, It's not like you can actually deform it and stretch it. And there are some terms that, you know, people say and use and, you know, that you, you are releasing and, A lot of it, you know, we don't know the full mechanisms, but everything that's trending in the research is more to your central nervous system and our brain and what it perceives as feeling good. And it's adding input, essentially, is what we're doing. When we're on our foam roller, you know, we're getting some tactile input from that foam roller on our skin, on our tissues, we're stimulating nerves, those signals go up to our brain, our brain is perceiving that. And if you were feeling pain somewhere then it's blocking those receptors that you were feeling. And now it's sending signals down. They're like, oh, this feels good. Oh, this is like good for me. Um, And we usually feel better after we get off. We're like, oh, I feel a lot looser. So it is uh, more of your nervous system that we're stimulating as opposed to we're actually stretching tissue.
0: That's so cool. I actually, I remember I, I read recently something, I think the your IT band specifically has roughly the same tensile strength as copper. <laughs> like you could surprised. hang a car from it if you needed right. to, like yeah. it's incredibly strong. Yeah, your body's an amazing thing. It's um, understanding that all your tissues have different properties, right? So yeah, like you said, you may be able to, you can stretch your muscles, we know that. You can't stretch some of these connective tissues or the fascia tissue itself.
1: Right, yep.
0: So related, <clears throat> I wanna talk about percussion massagers because they're incredibly popular and trendy. And I think that uh it seems like a lot of pro athletes are now signed to you have one. I've got one in the next room. It's charging, right? Um what uh what is what is the responsible and appropriate way for a runner to utilize a percussion massager?
1: Oh, okay. Um I think first off, let's say like what it is, right? Like it is. Yeah, sorry, like a hypervolt,
0: hyper ice, yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're, we're, we have this fast um, percussive gun, basically massage. And, you know, what it's doing is it's applying repeated pressure at a high speed. And what, what that is, you know, supposedly doing is really loosening up some of the tissues between your skin some of the fascia we talked about and really kind of thinning some of the fluid making the fascia more pliable and so your muscles can like move more easily and efficiently um so it's really aiming essentially the same goals as the foam roller to prevent tightness improve range of motion mobility speed up some muscle recovery um you know, the, the thing, or I guess the difference between a percussion gun and a foam roller is going to be, we can be a lot more localized, um, with the gun. So like this in our last, I don't know if I mentioned this in our last episode on plantar fasciitis, but I love this actually right on my plantar fascia, um, to really loosen that area in the stretch position because you can target right there. But if I need to cover, like my quads, like this is going to take me forever. Like I'm going to, you know, take what, like, five minutes just to like cover one leg. So it's not very efficient if you want to cover a large area, but if you have one area that you're feeling like super tight. And before I mentioned the hard up uh, hill uh, repeats that I actually did uh, yesterday for the first time ever. So thank you, by the way, um, that you shared on my show. And this morning for my run, I did feel like a little more tightness right in the front of my left hip, my rectus uh, attachment. And that's where I took my percussion gun and was like very isolated, spend thirty to sixty seconds in this area to kind of increase some blood flow, right? Before I did my dynamic warm-up before my run. So it's it's efficient at hitting like a small localized area. And it is reported to go a little bit deeper into the tissues. However, I would argue that it really depends upon what type of foam roller you have. So like me, I'm a big like fan of the one with the knobs, uh, the rumble roller, and you know it. I can put some significant pressure through it. It's all about body weight and how you put pressure through. But the percussion guns are purported to, you know, be able to go a little deeper into the tissues. So it helps like stimulate your muscles more and help your brain release a little bit more of that kind of tension. And there's some, you know, introductory evidence out there that shows percussion therapy can increase skin temperature, blood flow, hormonal responses due to like inflammation and the pain that we do have associated with delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS. So it just gives you a little bit more like specific control over a targeted area than a foam roller. But I know for me, like a long run, like a long, long run, right? You're out there like two and a half, three hours or something. It's really hard for me to really actively get on my foam roller and actually like do that after a run. So that's where I'll go to the gun because it's a little more passive where you can just hold it with your arm and hit those muscles that you need to hit.
0: Something you mentioned in this, what these these devices are doing, foam roll or percussion massager, is that you know they're they're uh, for muscles that can feel tight. They can help kind of change the way that our brain perceives what's going on. But I want to talk about kind of coming back to our our theme of this is that you know ways to aid recovery also may not replace other things that you also should be doing. Is that um, understand the difference between tightness versus weakness, and when it's appropriate? Like if I have Let's say I have, we'll go back to the hamstrings. We've already used this as an example. You know, if I'm if I'm a runner who is experiencing hamstring tightness and I go get an assessment, let's say I work with you and you say, Elizabeth, you know, I know that it's, you may feel like your hamstrings are tight and to do that you've been doing all this foam rolling and all this percussion massaging, but what's actually happening is your hamstrings are weak and we need to strengthen them. So how can we make sure that runners aren't, Taking a percussion massager to an area of weakness, mistaking it for an area of limited mobility or fascia adhesion or something that can be um, improved by working with a percussion massager or a foam roller.
1: Yeah, no, great question. And I think it really speaks to the point of that the majority of runners listening to this right now are going to be more limited in their strength capacity as a runner. Like that's going to be the limiting factor in you running faster, you running longer. And if we don't have all those things taken care of, like for me, myself, my running journey started being kind of the gym rat at, you know, during PT grad school and kind of, you know, became the treadmill runner for cardio to lean down, all that, um, where I've always been doing consistent, like strength training in the gym three times a week for the last literally 20 years. It has been now that I've been a physical therapist, uh, feeling old. Uh, but, uh, you know, if that is not you and you are a runner who is starting to get and dabble into strength training and maybe you are doing some hit style classes and you're like, Hey, we're like lifting weights or we're lifting a light bar or a kettlebell and you're like throwing it around. Um, just think about, um, you know, trying to really activate and strengthen specific muscles for running. Like there are some specific muscles that we use as runners that need to help maintain our form, make us more efficient as runners so we can run longer, run faster. So that's where the majority of people are going to fall into. And a lot of times for people who are hyper mobile and are more in will we classify you as more of like an unstable athlete maybe you've had a history of ankle sprains you roll your ankle a lot you have chronic ankle instability maybe you had patellar instability or you you were told when you were a female you know athlete playing soccer that your kneecaps were loose right they always slipped out of place Um, you know, maybe you've been, you were a flexible athlete as a dancer, a gymnast, a cheerleader, and you've always like been good at stretches and always better than your peers, right? You most likely aren't going to need a lot of soft tissue care and whether it's foam rolling, whether it's stretching, but you might perceive your muscles as tight. Like I before I kind of specialized and work with runners, I worked a lot with gymnasts and dancers and kind of had a specialty with performing artists. And a lot of them would say like, oh, I feel tight, like I need a stretch, I need a stretch. And in fact, it was weakness. And sometimes you can perceive it as tightness, but really getting down to the root cause of what they were feeling was more of a strength issue. And I love that you bring up the hamstring example for runners, because I think that's probably the biggest misconception is that runners need to stretch their hamstrings. And it's like, you know, the old thing your dad or your grandfather like did when they would go to the track and run and they'd sit down and you just stretch your hamstrings. And it's like as kids growing up in my generation, that's what we did in. PE, right? in gym, like, Oh, let's do the sit and reach test. And like, let's stretch before we run because we have to like prevent injuries and like stretch your hamstrings. So I, I think hopefully most of your listeners now, cause they're listening to this, they are an educated running, um, you know, community where they know that that is not the case. That's not true. And, The biggest impairment that I see in, or biggest deficit in runners who get the old dreaded proximal hamstring tendinopathy, um, which is very common, especially in marathoners, is that high hamstring pain right at your sit bone is because of weakness of the hamstring. It is never a flexibility issue. And all of us, even if you have the tightest hamstrings in the world, you literally have like 45 degrees of like hamstring flexibility. If you were to lay on your back and you put your arm behind your thigh and kick your leg up. If you only you can't go straight up, that would be like, right, you are able to lift all the way up. Let's say you can only go like halfway up, which is like 45 degree um, you know, from where you need to be, like you're gonna be able to run because we don't ever in our running form actually like stretch your hamstrings that much. So tight hamstrings is really never an issue for pretty much any runner, I'm going to go out there and say, unless you're a high level sprinter um, and you need that much mobility, but pretty much if you are, you're probably not listening to this podcast.
0: (laughs) And all, but those, those hyper-specialized athletes, and I'm thinking, you know, hurdlers, sprinters, those athletes have the strength to back up their mobility needs and I, I'll never forget, I, the, one of the a great conversation I had in season one talking about the difference between flexibility and mobility is that it's not just about, you know, can you lift your head or leg above your head, but it's like, can you do it under load? Can you be mobile while moving, right? And that's, you know, so when we talk about, you know, you don't see world-class sprinters and world-class hurdlers, you know, the reason, the reason that they can be so mobile and so fast is because they are so strong
1: yes absolutely and they have the stability right and like their movement patterns like you said they have really good stability and kind of going back to that more of like hypermobile athlete a lot of them lack the strength and stability of you know whatever if we're talking hamstrings then we're talking more core we're talking more deep hip you know muscles that aren't really stabilizing their body that needs to be stabilized when they run so it is more of a strength stability issue as opposed to a flexibility issue.
0: I want to talk about we're, it's, we're riding the fascia train. Um, the, the uh, modalities of flossing, fascia flossing, and also um, fascia scraping, like the sidekick tool. I know there are a couple of professional runners who are sponsored by Sidekick. The tool it's like a, a flat kind of scraper, and you're like, you like s- you scrape your fascia. Um, Talk about those, and is this kind of more of just the same, just kind of slightly different way of manipulating your fascia and bringing blood flow to the area and, and having that uh, that nerve stimulation?
1: Yeah, so great question. I guess I'll, I'll cover the, the fascial flossing first because um, they're kind of, I, I guess, two different elements, but yes, they are looking to kind of get the same goal. Um, the flossing the fascia is a, a really specific technique that was derived based on traditional Chinese medicine, meridians. So it is more of an Eastern medicine philosophy that we are essentially moving the fascia um, and mobilizing it along these specific meridian channels, um, specifically to like keep blood flow as well as like good vibe feeling. And so it's, it's, it's... I mean, I like good vibes. Is that wrong with good vibes? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Um... So it's similar to kind of what we talked about for self myofascial release, whether it's a foam roller or whether it's a percussion gun um, or a mobility ball, but it's more of moving through it. And when I look at the techniques, I'm no specialist in this. I don't like actually do these techniques with my runners but it's essentially active stretching techniques that's what they all look like like we're doing active stretches so we're moving through it but it is designed in a specific pattern a specific way to actually affect more of the meridian so some of the purported benefits affect like digestive system emotional um and hormonal well-being so that's a little out of my scope um, and I can't really like speak it's Also, a to pretty
0: th- bold claim, but yeah,
1: <laughs> yes, agreed. Um, but the other, uh, you talk about the sidekick tool, which is like very fascinating for me because actually when I started teaching, um, in our DPT program, uh, locally, you know, In the PT profession, it was when the explosion of what we call instrument-assisted soft tissue massage or mobilization came out. The Graston tool was the most popular one. It's the one that most people probably are familiar with. If anyone's ever been to a PT clinic by now, you've definitely probably seen this, right? They're these stainless stainless steel instruments that PTs will use and chiropractors use them as well um, to actually affect the soft tissue. So it's one modality, one way to treat soft tissue. So just like we would with our hands, use massage, just like a massage therapist with their hands, here we can use tools, instruments to actually treat the soft tissue. So the skin, the fascia, the muscles. And it is actually a very effective technique. I've you know used it for many, many years You know, when I was seeing clients in person, um, it can be helpful at treating that soft tissue. It is very interesting to me that now in the running community, at least it's marketed as a self uh, tool that you can do on yourself, which I think can definitely be a little bit dangerous because there are certain areas that you definitely don't want to do this over and you don't want to actually bruise certain areas there was a lot of misconceptions in the beginning that the more bruising the better that means like your your fascia is like really tight and you need this um you know that you need this treatment and you know we know that that necessarily isn't true um and it should feel comfortable if you do it on yourself um i have these instruments i've had them for years and like coming from physical nervous who's like done this stuff before. I've literally never done my own instrument assisted soft tissue massage. I've never felt the need to. I'd rather honestly just get down on my foam roller. Um, but I guess you could do it on yourself and do a self, but it takes a lot of work tell you the truth. Honestly, it's like, You're using a lot of your upper body strength to get in certain positions to access certain tissues and like muscles. So for me, um, it definitely isn't my first choice if I'm looking to really affect those uh, soft tissues. But it is essentially instrument-assisted soft tissue massage or mobilization. You're using a stainless steel instrument to be able to implement um, on your soft tissue.
0: I think it's actually, so I I mean, <clears throat> back when I think Molly Seidel first started pitching that she used the sidekick tool. And uh, so I went on, I was going to buy one and I couldn't pay whatever it was, $40, $35. It was like for a hunk of metal. So I went on Amazon and got a, a much li- uh, less expensive dupe. But what I found is that the areas that I was targeting with this tool, which was really um, kind of like the, the, uh, my calves, but like right on the outside kind of along the front next to the calf bone where i tend to get some some fascial adhesions um i just ended up you know putting getting some like oil and just like doing just regular massage like i felt the most effective way for me to target those areas was like i'll just massage my own calves um, you know, the, the Theragona I thought was a little bit too harsh for that area. Like, so I think all what you're, what you're saying about the grass and technique and about foam rolling and about flossing and about, um, the percussion massager is that these are all different tools that can help us achieve a similar outcome. It just really depends on which area of the body we're focusing on the, the type of pressure and kind of technique we're looking to use and what we're specifically targeting as an outcome.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And you bring up a good point because, yeah, these tools, like when I I took the Graston courses, you know, there are specific strokes, specific strokes for different folks, Um, but there are specific, like, ways to actually do this, and there are specific tools, and depending upon the convexity, concavity of the tool, how thick it is, the shape of it, it's different for all different body parts and, like, throughout your body. So I, I do think that it is... Basically, you know, marketing wise, uh, product wise, that it was something that was like used by clinicians who knew and had the anatomy training and, you know, about the body and how to apply the appropriate pressure that became like you can do this yourself. Um, I don't necessarily think it's that easy that you can do it yourself. Like, could you get lucky and like it just work out for you? Yes. But are you going to actually get the effective benefit that you could probably get by seeing a skilled clinician? No, I don't think so at all. Um, and is it worth it for you to like risk, you know, possibly making your pain that you're feeling on, you know, your inner shin area or inner calf worse um, because now your body's like fighting back? So, yeah, for me, I, I really don't see, um, you know, much usage or effect, unless you got some training yourself or you really you were working with the PT and they're like, hey, you know what? You really respond to this muscular tendinous junction, like right where your calf muscle connects to your Achilles and this gets bound down. That's like a common spot. And it's like, hey, here's this bar. What I want you to do is apply this pressure. They kind of make sure that you're applying it properly and they like show you exactly how to use it. I think it's a little hard for like those just going like Amazon and, and not all these tools feel the same, by the way, there are so many knockoffs and like the original, like Rastin set, like literally four tools is like $1,800. And there's one that I have that's like half that price, but they are, they feel so much more comfortable and the weight of them, the shape of them, than some of the knockoff, you know, seventy eighty dollar ones that you get on them they don't feel as good so not all tools are the same as well
0: yeah i think i i think also the one with technically i, I bought talking about you know uh, traditional chinese medicine was also like a gua sha scraper like yes. you know for like yeah. lymphatic drainage and and so uh yeah i'm i'm a big fan of apparently buying things and then just not using them <laughs> um <laughs> but hey what, you're like most runners like Right? <laughs> like, I bought something, I never used it again. Um, but it sounds like what we've kind of done is unintentionally, I'll admit this, unintentionally kind of uh, approached these different tools in a way that is like most user friendly to least user friendly, I guess we could say. Because a foam roller, inexpensive, easily available, kind of hard to mess up using it unless you're just spending way too much time like hanging onto one very specific body part and you're doing it for like, you know, minutes and minutes at a time. And then, like we said, perfect percussion massager, a little bit more specific, also more expensive, can get a really kind of intense with the pressure, depending on what um, setting you're using. And then the more specialized techniques of flossing, scraping, those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it, it, it's all a piece of the puzzle. Right. And it goes in how are you recovering? And, you know, I would even extend that to those that get frequent massages, right? Like that's part of your recovery as a runner. And yeah, I wish I treated myself to uh, massages more often. Um, It is rare. It's usually like when we're on vacation, I'll tell my wife, like, all right, first thing we need to do is book our massages because that's how I can like totally decompress. But it's great for your body physically as a runner as well. Um, So, you know, I would put that in kind of that recovery bucket um, as well.
0: So the last thing I wanted to talk about, this is not necessarily a recovery tool, but I think it is in line with what we're talking about about kind of soft tissue manipulation and kind of that riding that line between, you know, injury, self-injury management is KT tape or this kinesiology taping um, to improve mobility or limit, you know, uh, improve symptoms of injury. Or, you know, you see professional athletes running major races all like taped up and down. Tell us about KT tape. Tell us about taping and your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah, this this really takes us back to a little history lesson for those who are are old enough to remember the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Um, I remember that specifically because if you remember the beach volleyball gals, uh, Kerry Walsh and Misty May, um, you know, they were very exciting to watch. They won a gold medal and famously won a ton um, of gold medals. Yeah. And they had a bunch of kinesio tape all over their bodies. And that was like our first introduction to like seeing it visually. We were watching it on TV and it's like, what is that bright tape these athletes are wearing? And then it got super popular in professional sports. Um, It wound up being banned by the NBA. Derek Rose at one point got actually banned from a game he couldn't play because he had kinesio tape on his neck because we didn't really know a whole lot about it back then. And it was like this performance enhancer. And then it it became like this big buzz thing in the rehab world, like as PTs. So this was five years into my career, never learned about kinesio tape in PT school. And then it was like everyone went to like continuing education courses on like kinesio taping. And it became like this huge like you know, the latest, greatest thing to like add into your treatment. And, you know, I knew some clinicians that were literally taping every single patient that walked through the door. Um, but now like after a decade of that whole madness, I guess I'll call it, uh, happening, there has been actually a lot of high quality research that has been done. And just to, I guess, give you a little framework for those, um, who use kinesio tape, kinesiology tape, KT tape, Um, It is this thinner type tape that is elastic in nature. So it's flexible. And that was like the biggest benefit is that you can actually, you know, move the tape and it moves with your body. So it's actually really good for athletes because it's not restrictive, like athletic tape, if anyone had... ankle taped ever. um, You know, it's like you can't move. This allows you to actually move. And what it was designed for is to act as a skin lift mechanism. So we're actually treating the skin and trying to increase the movement in between the skin and everything underneath. So you're actually helping to stimulate healing. And, you know, this was, um, you know, the theoretical model that it was all based upon but now that we have some research on it what it is is essentially a very bright and glorified band-aid meaning like you got a boo-boo as a kid right you like cut yourself you went to you know mom and was like oh my boo-boo hurts can i have a band-aid put the band-aid on you're like that feels great thank you i'm all healed like did the band-aid actually like heal what you were feeling in that cut no but we do know that after many, many high quality studies, they've done systematic reviews on this and like our evidence hierarchy, right? This is like the, the greatest when we take randomized controlled trials, compare kinesio tape to other modalities, compare it, you know, does it actually increase mobility? Does it increase strength? Does it increase performance? Jumping, all of this, they've looked at it. And the only thing that it does is patient report subjectively of pain relief. It feels good when it's on. So, you know, to long story short here is kinesio tape can be effective at decreasing pain if you feel like it is decreasing pain. Is it going to heal any injury? No. If you wound up tweaking something right before a big race and you're going to run this race and your therapist or you put on kinesio tape and it feels good, is it going to hurt you? No. But if you're chronically taping yourself, thinking that it's either preventing injuries, treating an injury, um, it is not doing any of those. So it's not going to help you long term, as you mentioned before, Elizabeth. Strengthening is the key thing that will help you long term. Um, so I've picked my spots in using it as a clinician, you know, especially in the gymnastics, dance realm, and it's like they're wearing costumes and stuff on stage. Kinesio tape is great because it's like low profile, like you won't even see it um, if you get like the nude, you know, color where it's not like someone wearing a brace because they have knee pain on stage. Um, and for runners, it it is pretty comical when you still go to races and it, it's just so funny how like these trends happen because in the clinical realm, I saw this whole boom happen in basically, you know, the 2008 to like... 2018, where like all clinicians were using it inside clinics. Uh, I think most high quality clinics that you do go to nowadays, you rarely see it used, but now it's progressed into the general public and the general public can literally, I picked this up at CVS one time for my daughter who had a little tweak. Again, I was going to really help her get through and play her volleyball game and put a piece of tape on and, um, you know, it worked, right? Uh, So we can all access Kinesio Tape now at any pharmacy, any supermarket. And, you know, it is funny when I see like so many runners relying on it or I see it at races and half of them, it's flopping off anyway. Half of them, I don't even know what they're treating. So it's like in random spots. Um, So just think about it and use it in its context. And um, if it's really going to help you short term, just like, it's no different than you putting an ice pack on something that hurt. It's, it's creating a temporary form of pain relief. The nice thing about it is it does stay on for three to four days. So it's a longer form of pain relief than like an ice pack, but it's not going to treat and get down to the root cause of your injury.
0: I think sometimes it's confusing for people when they are, you know, cause I get questions about all this, you know, all this stuff, you know, does KT tape do anything? Um, and you know, when we talk about something like, which is essentially a placebo effect, right? Like it, it's going to, and pr- compression socks are like this too. I mean, in, 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 uh, for performance, not for recovery, not with like Venus return and all that kind of stuff. But like when I tell somebody that it doesn't do anything, they're like, well, why do I feel better? I'm like, because you think it's working. Like that's the placebo effect in action. That's not to say it's not, a, it's not a valuable thing. If you feel better, That's valuable. But Mm -hmm. I think you're right in understanding that it's not fixing anything. And if this is the only thing you're using to address the problem, it's not going to do anything for you.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's the best thing that we can communicate. And yeah, as runners, just like no different than what we're wearing for clothing, no different than what we're using for fueling, no different than what we're using for which super shoe that we're using. If we think it's giving us a little advantage and that's enough to give you the confidence to be able to like go out there and do your thing, um, then yeah, no harm, no foul. But yeah, it's a long-term solution especially kinesio tape like it's not going to help you in the long term by any means (laughs) it's not going to be that like magic thing that you like put on and you're like i'm going to run so much faster um it's it's not going to happen
0: i have a i have a couple leftover rolls of kt tape from back in the day and i actually find them very useful for pre-taping hot spots (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. or like areas
0: where I might chafe or get blisters it's incredible it, you're right it stays on it's flexible right it's meant for athletes it's very useful for that application so if you have a bunch of rolls left over keep them they might have use for you
1: <laughs> absolutely I even sometimes I use them now to like uh, I use like little metatarsal mounds in um, on my inserts in my shoes um, just because my foot type and yeah I use it as like essentially tape to like tape that down. Um, but yeah, I have way too many rolls uh, laying around.
0: <laughs> well, Dwayne, this was a wonderful conversation as always. Thank you for coming on. And I know that you like, I, I think you have something in the works that is going to be a recovery guide. Is that correct? Why don't you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah. So I created a, a free resource um, for all your listeners. It's called the Ultimate Recovery Guide for Running. And it's got a a ton of supplemental resources, visuals, videos, like how to do your Spark 7, I like to call it, of like the seven muscles that all runners really should be releasing. Um, Also, you know, talk about percussion gun, talk about other recovery modalities that really will fill that recovery bucket. Um, So you can definitely, you know, download that resource. Just go to learn.sparkhealthyrunner.com. Um, to be able to get that resource. And yeah, I love uh, creating content that really is instructional and will really help you um, really stay healthy as you continue to get stronger and run longer. So hopefully that will be uh, useful for your listeners.
0: Yeah, I can't wait to download it for myself and take a look.
1: Yeah, well, well. thank you for you know having me on. I, I appreciate this conversation
0: always and have a great race in three weeks i'll be rooting for you i hope it goes the way that you want it to
1: yeah well thank you hopefully uh yeah it will work out and i'll enjoy the journey and if i don't get the result i'll still be enjoying my uh, running journey um so i can enjoy lifelong injury-free running
0: that is the goal always the ultimate goal indeed